Hoy hoy, all you delightful little ragamuffins. I'm John Miller, and you are listening to Everybody Trades. Oh yes, today we're, we're mostly going to play off The Dark Knight, but gosh darn it, Danny Elfman's theme music from the original 1989 Batman film still really juices my member berries, if you will, but... And I will say, if you're in your mid-late 30s like me, there's probably a good chance that Batman, that Michael Keaton version, was indeed the first VHS you ever owned, as it was for me as well. You see, previously, the home video market, VHS tapes were $50, maybe even more. But eventually, with this movie, Warner Brothers finally blinked and released Batman for a MSRP of twenty four ninety five, and also within six months of the movie's the- theatrical release. Both of these movies really just were unprecedented at the time, totally blew up the home movie market, ultimately leading to Blockbuster and all the local video rental places that we all remember. And also, even to this day, where we are with Netflix and DVDs and all that good stuff. And now, gosh, now a lot of times movies are available to stream after they've been released in theaters maybe three, four months ago. So, obviously, progress has led to increase in technology, dropping prices, and all that good stuff. But you know what? I digress. Because... Today we're here to talk about why the terrorists hate us, and I'm going to play off a famous speech and moment, a a quote from the famous, well, really probably the greatest comic book movie of all time in the opinions of the nerd kingdom, and well, maybe myself as well, I'll throw myself in there, The Dark Knight from 2008, certainly one of the best movies of that year, and like I said, one of the best comic book movies of all time. Indeed, The Dark Knight was the second and most critically acclaimed of the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. And you know what? Let's just get right into it. Alfred, who is played by Michael Caine in this soundbite we're about to hear, is telling Bruce Wayne, played by Christian Bale, an old story from his military days, which he helps will explain the Joker's motivations. Criminals aren't complicated, Alfred. We just need to figure out what he's after. With respect, Master Wayne, perhaps this is a man you don't fully understand either. A long time ago, I was in Burma. My friends and I were working for the local government. They were trying to buy the loyalty of tribal leaders by bribing them with precious stones. But their caravans were being raided in a forest north of Rangoon by a bandit. So we went looking for the stones. But in six months, we never met anyone who traded with him. One day, I saw a child playing with a ruby the size of a tangerine. The bandit had been throwing them away. So why steal them? Well, because he thought it was good sport. Because some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. So basically, according to Alfred, there was a bandit, as he called him in Burma, who was simply taking all the rubies that Alfred and his friends, as he called them, were helping, again, out the local government, 
essentially bribing, right? Well, according to Alfred, this guy was a bandit, and the fact that he had no use for money meant that he had no motivation, essentially, that like some men, he just wants to watch the world burn. And indeed, this was he was obviously drawing a parallel here to the Joker in The Dark Knight and his behavior during this point of the film. But here's the deal. I want to add a little bit of context to all of this because while it's not mentioned in The Dark Knight, in the comic book series, I've found that Alfred was a part of the British intelligence type deal like the intelligence he was an intelligence officer in world war ii is what i'm trying to say let's see if i can spit that out at some point but seriously that explains a lot actually because britain the british empire colonized burma actually all the way back in 1824 but over the next 60 years, there, was, there would be three Anglo-Burmese wars and various other political fights that ultimately ended with full British Empire control in 1886. But then a few decades later, when World War II broke out, a struggle for power in Burma, a struggle for control over Burma, broke out between London and Tokyo that ultimately ended... With, Burmy, with Burma getting their independence from the British Empire in about 1948. So again, this idea that he was helping out the local government, I, I would question that idea a little bit. Because undoubtedly, some of those native Burmese people saw Alfred as a conqueror, and with good cause. Frankly, what other co- conclusion could have been drawn? Were they supposed to assume that Alfred and his buddies were nicer than the conquerors of Japan, the ones who were vying for control? Because whether or not Alfred was in a British uniform or not at that time, maybe he was with Peace Corps. I have no idea. But if I'm a Burmese person, and I think you could relate to this as well, I'm not so sure I would want any quote-unquote help from any British subjects after decades of war with them. And in fact, there's probably a good chance that some of your ancestors may have killed members of my family. And guess what? Those types of grudges do not go away in a generation. In fact, they linger for many generations and sometimes for thousands of years. And frankly, that's something I think it's tough for those of us who are Americans to relate to at times. Because as a nation, we are so much younger than those in Europe and Asia And compared to the rest of the world, we just let go of our grudges much more easily than Europe and Asia do, than the the old world does, if you will. But of course, let's go back to the money quote of Alfred's little monologue there. He says, some men just want to watch the world burn. And to the American foreign policy establishment, clearly this explains Osama bin Laden and the people, the other perpetrators of the World Trade Center attacks, and people who think like him. Or at least this is what they would like us to believe. Because frankly, it's much easier to simply hand wave the complicated histories and feuds and rivalries in that region of the world, the Middle East that we call it, and just to simply act like radical Islam is just this kooky sect of people that just simply wants to watch the world burn. But ironically enough, the same people who make this argument actually betray this notion when they start delving into the money side. 
And this made me think of comedian Adam Carolla, who one time he was on a cruise ship on vacation with his family, and he observed the amusing irony of a wave pool being built onto the deck of a cruise ship. Basically like, okay, we're in the ocean and we're making waves on a boat that's in the ocean. To which Adam humorously noted, this is why the terrorists hate us. Now that's a funny joke and an observation about human nature and excess, to be sure. But does American opulence really entirely explain why the terrorists hate us? Well, it sure seems like former Vice President Dick Cheney seemed to think so at the time. You see, a few days after the World Trade Center attacks, Cheney was interviewed by NBC's Tim Russert. And you know what? Let's hear that bite right now. The stock market has been closed since Tuesday. It reopens tomorrow. Are you concerned? I think uh, that our economy is strong. Um, I uh, do believe the market's going to open tomorrow. That's uh, clearly the current plan and expectation. Uh, I would hope, uh, I'm, I'm not an investor anymore because I had to uh, get out of the market since I'm now a public official, but I would hope the American people would, uh, in effect, stick their thumb in the eye of the terrorist and, and uh, say that they've got great confidence in the country, great confidence in our economy, and not let uh, what's happened here in any way uh, throw off uh, their normal level of economic activity. We look forward to recovery later this year from the slowdown period that we've been through, and uh, I have every confidence that, uh, that that will, in fact, happen. Well, that was interesting, wasn't it? Dick Cheney said that he hopes Americans would stick their thumb in the eye of the terrorists and not let what's happened here in any way throw off their normal level of economic activity. Now, essentially what VP Cheney is saying there is buy more stuff, continue to buy stuff, or the terrorists win. Now, that actually smacks of a bit of motivation, doesn't it? It seems like, well, they are motivated to at least bring us down a notch. At least that's their idea. But really, though, this is kind of also shows something that I've been positing a lot, which is that Keynesianism is not really a left idea or a democratic idea. It's, in fact, a mainstream idea. You heard, again, Republican President Dick Cheney essentially endorsing the Keynes viewpoint there. You see, almost everyone in government, regardless of political party, buys into the Keynes more spending mentality. See, that's the health of an, of an economy is confidence. You heard him say confidence and also a normal level of economic activity, meaning just spin, spin, trade, trade, trade. And of course, the political establishment is going to believe this, believe this because why wouldn't they? Because from their perspective, more spending by the government, whether it's from direct taxation or indirect taxation via inflation, well, that just means all that stealing of wealth from us, that just means more and more power for them. So, of course, they go along with it. So even though a lot of the sort of war hawks establishment, the political establishment of America, again, embraces this idea that bin Laden was like the Joker and radical Islam is like the Joker and that they, they're not actually motivated by anything. They just want to watch the world burn. Now, in order to explain, hopefully, maybe try to get a different perspective than Alfred's on who this bandit in Burma just might have been, I want to digress for just a second and 
remind you about the legend of William Tell. Now, you're probably casually aware of William Tell, the Swiss man who was forced by an occupying Austrian official to shoot an apple resting on his son's head. But you probably didn't know that after Tell splits, successfully splits the apple in half with a successful shot, sparing his own son's life, there's actually a lot more to it than that. Because firstly, after that accurate shot, another arrow falls out of Tell's shirt. And he tells the Austrian official, had my son been harmed, this arrow would have been for you. Later, Tell, a guerrilla fighter, is taken prisoner when his plot to assassinate the Austrian emperor is discovered. However, Tell escapes, kills the offending officer from the Apple incident. Then Tell ultimately leads an uprising, the result of which is a dead emperor and all Austrian troops fleeing Switzerland for good. Now, Tell obviously is a good guy to the Swiss citizens, but a bad guy to the Austrian rulers. Alfred viewed the man in Burma as a bandit, but I have to wonder how native Burmese, resentful surely of not only the British Empire, but the puppet regimes that were installed in Burma, yeah, I'm guessing many of those people felt quite a bit differently about that guy than Alfred did. Now, just really quickly, lest you think this is becoming some kind of justification for mass murder in New York City by Osama bin Laden and his cohorts, well, believe me, I'm absolutely not going there whatsoever. Clearly, bin Laden is a horrible man who deserved everything that happened to him. But here's the deal. We need to know the truth. You see, it's not about getting Osama bin Laden off the hook. It's about understanding why he did what we did, and most importantly, how we can avoid similar calamities in the future. And believe me, I get it. Americans who buy into the entire warfare state post-9-11 think that we are the ones who are under attack. But here's the deal. The people that actually live in the places that D.C. is hitting with drone strikes and being occupied by American troops and what have you, well, guess what? They think they are the ones who are under attack, and they have been so for centuries. And who is right? Well, considering we're the ones who are over there and none of them, as far as troops, official occupation, anything like that, none of them are over here. So you answer that question for me. And here's the other thing. A lot of people act like 9-11, the, the act itself, the, the World Trade Center attacks, that this event happening was actually showed that the peace movement can never work. And moreover, it proves that the need for a huge, aggressive U.S. military presence throughout the world. But quite frankly, that's only true if you believe history began on September 10th, 2001. The reality is, is Osama bin Laden, in his letter to America, he put out his reasons for attacking and continuing to attack and be opposed to American government and Western governments. He put it all out there. I mean, it's really, it's quite simple. You don't have to agree with all of it, but to act like he has, he just wants to watch the world burn, well, that's clearly not accurate. And without actually getting into all the details in it, If you want to check it out for yourself, go ahead. 
But the reality is, is the his main thing is he wanted these Western governments out of the Middle East. That was his big thing. Now, there's more to it than that, but that is the number one thing. And the reality is, is the West has occupied large parts of the Middle East ever since the the Crusades supposedly ended. And I say supposedly because the, from the perspective of people in the Middle East, the Crusades never ended, and they continue to this day. Western governments are just the logical extension of that. For example, Paris, the French government, ruled over Syria and Lebanon following World War I. London took over Palestine and three Ottoman pro- provinces, creating modern-day Iraq. And by the way, what a disastrous idea that Iraqi province ultimately came to be. One that is just unquestionably forced, again, warring tribes that had been at each other's throats for centuries. Hey, let's just force them all to live together under this one tyrannical psycho named Saddam Hussein. I'm sorry, that idea has unquestionably led to more war and death and, frankly, lack of progress in that region of the world. So obviously, going back to Alfred's speech that I played at the beginning of this episode, what's the solution? at least from the British's perspective. If there's this bandit who's out there destroying your system of bribes in order to get local leaders on your side, on the side of the local government, trying to get a governmental unity, essentially, well, what's the solution, Alfred? What did you guys do? That bandit in the forest in Burma, did you catch him? Yes. How? We burned the forest down. So there you have it. In order to catch this one guy, this one bandit, this one pocket of resistance, we must burn down the entire forest and indeed anybody else in the forest with them. No matter how, no matter what they did, right or wrong, they got to go too. And guess what? Is that is that where we want to go as a society? Because after 19 years in Afghanistan. We could go there. We could. You know what? We could have burned Vietnam to the ground, too, and won, quote-unquote, the war. But my question is, what would have been won? Certainly our consciences wouldn't have felt great after that. Let's just murder everybody in a country. Yeah, that, that's really good for your soul, I'm sure. And we could certainly nuke the Middle East, too. But beyond the moral side of that, which is obviously extremely important, yes, mass murder is immoral. That's my hot take. But there's also the really practical side, too, from the government's perspective. How do you tax the conquered people if they're all dead? What fun is conquering a land if you destroy all the potential loot? Yeah, we could do that. We could actually, we could just burn the Middle East to the ground. We could nuke it. We, we could do that. Or we could continue this slog of endless occupation and war that we've been in for the last 19 years where we just waste trillions of dollars, waste tons of people's lives, their literal lives are taken away, their arms and limbs are blown off, they're maimed. Yeah, we could continue to do that. That's a second option. Or a third option. How about this? We could pull our troops out, use them for actual real defense here in America and our actual borders on our actual shores, and hopefully when that happens, the Middle East will eventually have its renaissance. Because 
I really believe the West has kept that place locked in time to some extent. Because just like the Dark Ages set back all of humanity, but particularly the West for hundreds of years, I really believe we've similarly destroyed the potential progress of that region of the world, the Middle East, by keeping them wrapped up in constant warfare and destruction. Now, admittedly, I'll admit this. Maybe a Middle East renaissance, maybe it never will happen. Maybe they would have done it to themselves, even if the West and D.C. never got involved. But to me, worst case scenario, even if that's true, at least I'm not involved. At least we aren't involved. At least America is not involved. At the very least, we've saved tons of our money, our children's lives, and our consciences will be clean. Now, to me, even if it doesn't ultimately result in the Renaissance in the Middle East, that's worth it. But I'll tell you this, even if you don't think it's going to happen, I, and I truly believe it will happen eventually. If you let them, leave them alone, it's certainly not going to happen under constant threat of bombing, of warfare, of disease and famine caused by warfare and the various other political realities of it, sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. None of it's worth it. What's worth it is getting out and saving what we have left of, frankly, our dignity. Because after 19 years in Afghanistan, what dignity does the U.S. government have left? What dignity does our military have left? This is an embarrassment. We shouldn't be over there. They don't want us over there, and frankly, I don't want us over there either. So bring home the troops and sit them in Chesapeake Bay for all I care. So, with all that being said, until next time, I'm John Miller, and this has been Everybody Trades.